Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, last Saturday, RT broadcast online a 10-hour production dramatising the most important debate that was ever held in Dáil That, of course, was the treaty debate conducted between December 1921 and January 1922, which resulted in the split over the Anglo-Irish Treaty and within months had led to a bloody and sometimes savage civil war that cost a huge amount in lives, a sense of unity and ultimately the direction of the new 26-county state that had emerged from the treaty. I'll check this with my guest now in a minute, but I understand that it may no longer be available on the RT player, but this is something that should be seen and studied wherever there is learning in this country, whether it be in schools or colleges, and it should also be viewed by anybody with an interest in politics and particularly in democracy. The production was staged by Anua Productions and adapted by poet Theo Dargan. Crucially, all of the dialogue in it is exactly the words as spoken during that passionate and historic debate. It really is something, folks, and it is also timely, as exactly 100 years ago, the subsequent civil war was in its most savage but thankfully relatively short phase before coming to an end in around the late spring of 1923. And Theo Dargan is my guest today. Theo, you're very welcome. Uh, Mick, always good to talk to you. Theo, first of all, congratulations. Uh, I have to say, having watched a lot of it, um, I came away enthralled, but also profoundly sad. There was a sense of finality about it. And, and I don't know, it was like a vision had sort of dissipated. And of course, we now know exactly where it led. Well, this was originally a live production in the Kevin Barry room in the National Concert Hall in Dublin, which is the same the room that the debates actually took place in. And um, Anu specialised in immersive theatre. You're there as it's happening. You're part of the action. And the audiences, the four, we, we put it on over four nights. The audiences were extraordinarily moved. But why wouldn't they be? There were ghosts in the room. I, I say this very soberly. There were ghosts in the room. When it came to the debate, the audience was in tears, literally in tears, because this is a wound that never healed. Every theme that came up is still a live issue. Partition, sovereignty, the relationship with a supranational association of states, whether TDs are there to speak their voices or to represent their constituents, all these major questions are still unanswered. Yeah, and as well, some of the, the, the main players, the likes of Michael Collins, Arthur Griffith, uh, Cahill Brewer, Harry Boland, within months, all of them would be dead as well, uh, as well as others. And th- there would be a split there that some would suggest in one form or another endured for the following hundred years. Well, it's still alive. And, you know, the, it was fascinating to listen to the discussions afterwards among people, the audience and the actors. The actors, I have to say, nobody has ever done anything like this in my lifetime. 45 actors in a single production 
Louise Lowe, who directed it, must be the, the finest theatrical genius at work in Irish theatre today. But I'll tell you this, after the vote, at the very end of it, when the actors left the room and went back off down to the dressing room, they were entirely silent. The actors themselves were entirely silent because the weight of history was on us all. I grew up, you know, with, you know, my, my grandfather was E Company 4 Battalion, the old IRA. Uh, I grew up fairly unthinkingly thinking that, you know, we didn't get our Ireland. And as time went on and taught me to look at things as they actually are, I began to think very differently about it. My concern with writing this or unwriting it, I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute, was to give all sides their due and see what was actually at stake. We all have family histories. Our grannies told us this. Our next door neighbor's second best cousin was involved in this side or that side and so on. I thought, no, we need to know what it was actually about. What were the real issues at stake and how did people deal with it? That was the original impetus to do this. And I have to say, as I went through it, my heart sank lower and lower and lower because these, all of these TDs start out as comrades. They're all Republicans. Start to last, from beginning to end, they are all Republicans. But some of them are concerned that the Republic should derive its legitimacy from what the people want. And others are clinging to the mystical idea of a Republic founded in the Easter Rising and kept going by force of arms. So what you have there are two things. Legitimacy as deriving from armed struggle or legitimacy as deriving from the will of the people expressed through the dial. It was heartbreaking for to hear De Valera, for instance, say four times, I will abide by the decision of this dial. And at the end, after the vote is taken, there will be a meeting tomorrow in the Mansion House for all those who, like myself, cannot accept this decision. A lot of people, and it's a controversial point, but a lot of people say that Dev bore a, a huge amount of responsibility for what was to subsequently unfold. And it's something that haunted himself, I believe, for the rest of his life. And people often suggest even later in life, when uh, people came to him to ask him about his very long and, and you could say successful career, how he shaped his Ireland of the day. And he always wanted to go back to this. It was nearly as if he wanted to revisit it, kind of, and something still bugged him, perhaps, about the way he'd handled it. But that is one thing. But one thing you mentioned, the other thing, Theo, when you say, and that word, republic and republican. And we use that term, but having watched it, was there much conversation about what a republic, as we understand the term, would be? Unsurprisingly, Mick, you've gone straight to the heart of the matter. Not a single TD gave any idea of what they meant by a republic. They said, that, you know, a republic is governed of the people, for the people, by the people. Yeah, and then what? And then what? And then what? If you look at the French Constitution or you look at the American Constitution, the manner in which both those states describe the, um, the range of what a republic encompasses, we've never had that. In our own constitution, we do not describe our state as a republic. You know... Costello came back from Canada and, and said, you know, oh, well, you know, we are now a republic. But a declaration in the Doyle is one thing. But we do not have in our constitution a description of the state as a republic. Now, this goes back to a, an unexamined idea that somehow 
there is a foreordained unity of the Irish nation on this island, encompassing all of this island under a unitary authority that it was declared on Easter week in the proclamation and therefore is somehow de facto in being. That's not so. Two TDs refer to the democratic programme of December 1919 in the first style. A document so radical in many ways that if Lenin had proposed it in the February Duma, it would have been thrown out, and by October 1917, it was too late. The Dáil voted for the democratic programme unanimously. In there was the skeleton of a description of what a republic is. First and foremost, care for their children, for their material, physical and spiritual well-being. All of this. If you go into the RTE archives, 1966, you find Ernest Blyde saying, I don't think any of us took it seriously. We just saw it as the hoist of a flag. And Sean McEntee saying, I do not think the urban workers would have believed in our bona fides. And in any case, the farmers would not have stood for it. So there you have, in the very first dial, December 1919, the government unanimously adopting a policy with no intention whatsoever of carrying it through. Now that shakes your belief in the funny. But that dial, that dial's legitimacy is still claimed. Right? It's heartbreaking to see the certainty with which people who are opposed to the treaty keep saying this will happen, that will happen, the other thing will happen, and to know that it didn't. They were convinced the Union Jack would fly over Dublin Castle. It didn't. They were convinced the British would only pretend to withdraw their army. They were wrong. They were convinced that the ministers of the Free State Government would be described as His Majesty's Minister. They weren't. That the officers in the new Irish army would be described as His Majesty's officers. They weren't. So you're sitting there and you're listening to these absolutely genuine people who totally believe something and you know that it didn't happen. And you're sitting there and you're listening to De Valera and you realise that five years after the end of the Civil War, he's in Dylairn, doing exactly what Michael Collins proposed in the middle of the debates they should do, argue politically for their aims, inside a united Dáil. And you wonder, 15, 1,600 people died for this. The, the oath became the great shibboleth of the time. De Valera walked in and signed the oath, walking it down. He said, that's oh, only a piece of paper. Well, tell that to the 15, 1,600 people who are dead. One TD said, Ireland is for those above the ground, not those under it. And that really is where it breaks. And it's heartbreaking to see absolutely genuine, passionate people carried away by their own rhetoric and not looking at reality in the face, which is still, I'm afraid, the case with our professional political class in this day and age. They still will not look reality in the face. Yeah, and just before leaving that issue of the Republic, so to speak, what evolved in terms of that term then, of course, Theo, over the decades, and particularly in the most recent decades, is that it was effectively taken to mean nothing more than uh, a so-called United Ireland were all governed by one government on the island, and that was it. I mean, for example, if you look at people who describe themselves as Republicans, their vision for it has gone radically, perhaps, from a socialist republic to merely... uh, uh, the single entity thing. So that whole, that term I think is is, is one, particularly in the Irish context, that has been, I, I think it's fair to say, abused largely. Well, I think it's become an empty term, but it's a term that remains to be filled and we can fill it. Now, 10, but must, is it 10 years ago I edited a book of essays called Cornerstone towards a constitution for a 21st century republic. Now, I just served 
10 of the best political thinkers in the country, from all shades of opinion, legal experts, pol professional politicians. And I invited them to tell us what should the constitution for a 21st century republic have in it. And I got really good essays back from people. That book didn't get a single review. Not one. Right? It was never yeah. referred to in any of the media, print or broadcast. And I just think, talk about the elephant in the room. We're talking about a, an imminent border poll. About what? About what? We will not deal with the substantial issue. It's unsurprising to me that not a single, to the very best of my knowledge, not a single TD or senator came to these, this reenactment of the treaty debates. Not one. That's hugely telling. I'm afraid it is. There was one Labour councillor from Louth, as far as I can make out from the, the media, the social media response. But if they were there, then they came incognito and I would have a fair idea who most of them are at this stage. It's kind of heartbreaking to see the difference between the passion, the erudition, the literacy of these TDs and the original debate, how they had taught their arguments through for good or ill, and to compare it to the level of discourse that we have to deal with now, with some glorious exceptions in both the Doyle and, but more perhaps, in the Shannon. You know, the level yeah. of public discourse among professional politicians has fallen, I'm sorry to say, very low. And the other thing about that, Theo, is uh, I don't know off the top of my head, but the average age of those in the current Oireachtas, you'd have to guess, would probably be, I don't know, maybe around the 50 mark, people with experience who've been around education, most of them very educated. The average age in the treaty debates, so I think around 32? 32 to 35, in that range, yes. But more to the point, these were women and men who had put themselves on the line for Ireland. Many of them had fought. The rest of them had fought politically for a free and independent Ireland. But only two TDs in the whole debate referred glancingly to the um, democratic programme. And, you know, um, W.T. Cosgrave, who, of whom I would not be a fan, I thought him very far too right-wing for my tastes, but he did say he brought up the 20,000 people in his constituency who had no work. He brought it, he said, what are we for? We all know what we're against, but what are we for? What are we for? One TD came over with an analysis that could have come from James Connolly. He said, you think when you have removed the British flag and the British army from Ireland that you have your freedom. But until you have, the, un, while British investment owns the banks, controls the industries, controls your trade, you have not your freedom. Now that was Michael Collins. And we tend to think that Collins didn't have a politics. He did. He had a very distinct politics. So had de Valera. And I think de Valera... There's a kind of a tragic strain running through the debates of de Valera trying to work out, while speaking to Doyle, where he actually stands. Mm. You know, I mean, I don't doubt the man's honesty for a moment, but he was very confused. I mean, he often contradicted himself in the one speech. But we shouldn't, I think, and I know you wouldn't, we shouldn't resist, um, you know, restrict this this think, thinking about the treaty debates to the, the remembered figures. Some of the ones whom history has half forgotten, if not entirely forgotten, made contributions that were every bit as trenchant and meaningful and heartfelt. Sean Etchingham, for instance. That most extraordinary man, Robin, Seamus Robinson, a Glaswegian Scot who came to fight for Ireland uh, and who stood up and asked, with a perfectly straight face and meant it, can anyone here demonstrate that Mr. Michael Collins ever fired a shot at an enemy of Ireland? Sadness, yeah. You know, he'd been in the GPO for two years. What more do you want? You know? But... 
the personal hatreds, personal vendettas. Cahill Brewer's viciousness towards Michael Collins was startling. Absolutely. In fact, I was half afraid someone in the audience was going to get up and give him a box. You know, it was, yeah. but then people were that immersed in it. I wouldn't have been surprised. And Mary McSweeney, too, I noticed she oh, made this reference to Colin and trying to be smart, made this reference. It was a Princess Elizabeth, was it? Uh, her, her, the, no. the, the announcement has been made. Her marriage, her forthcoming was, marriage has been cancelled and she's going to marry Michael. Some stupid thing like that this. Was, that was Markovitz, the Countess Markovitz. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Or Madame Markovitz. Arthur Griffith maintained that her title was a spurious one. She was not entitled to be known as a Countess. The title had died. Her husband's title had died 100 years beforehand. So he referred to her always as Madame Markovitz. Um, no, she, she made some snide remark about um, Princess Mary is about to give up her uh, fiancé and marry Mr. Michael Collins. There was terribly stupid things. But then in the heat of arguments, these things happen. What's possibly difficult for people who've embraced Markovitz as, as a revolutionary um, exemplar is when she says that if we have a governor general in the in the Phoenix Park, it will lead to all kinds of social voices, even including divorce. You know, <laughs> people that we think of as progressive and tolerant and show themselves in many cases not to be that in the least, you know? Somebody yeah. who went up <laughs> in my estimation, who I had not really given, done justice to, I think, in the past, was Arthur Griffith. But there were people like Robert Barton, for instance, and Sean McEntee and Sean T. O'Kelly, who were both, on, the latter two on different sides, entirely earnest and genuine in their beliefs and in their passions. Entirely earnest, as were they all, in their love of Ireland. But you can love Ireland and hate your former comrade. On what? On the distinction between the treaty and Dev's document number two. I mean, there was... It was very, it's profoundly sad. It is. And the, the other thing that struck me, Theo, is it's what exactly, ultimately, was it about? Because you had the treaty, Dev's number two document, I don't know what kind of status that would have had, whether it would, this external association and what have you. Like, to me, what would strike me was, the alternative was, we accept this treaty, or we accept there's going to be war. Now, if you accept there's going to be war, what do you see or foresee as the ultimate outcome of that? And I think Collins was very straight what he saw as the outcome if, if people went down that road. Nobody asked. Nobody, very, very few of these TDs asked real questions. For instance, um, you know, the, the, the elephant in the room is, is and still is, partition. Right? You had people saying confidently, we can take on the orange men. Right? Now, Dev, give Dev his credit. He had said, we cannot coerce them into, an, into Ireland. But people forget, and the, 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 the Ulster volunteers had 100,000 rifles available to them. The Irish volunteers had 4,000. Now, you are not going to defeat, never mind the British army, leave the British army outfit for a moment. You were not going to annex the six counties. It, that's a simple truth. It's still a truth, by the way. Well, we need to face up to it. You cannot include people in a nation who do not wish to be in it. You invite them in. You do not coerce them in. Or you don't jiggery-pokery with numbers and tell them, no, you are. That's realistically not going to happen. If you wanted a way of understanding what happened in the Dáil between the beginning and the end of the debates, there were those who said, yes, but what then? What then? And those who said, ah, it'll work out somehow. 
Yeah, it was nearly in that respect, too. I, I got the impression. It was nearly of the whole idea of pragmatism versus, I don't know, what was a, a romantic, perhaps 19th century ideal of what a, a, a proper break from the crown would consist of. It was nearly like the rubber hitting the road. This is the reality, folks, and some were not yet prepared to face up to that reality. It's very odd. You always must listen to the language people use. And so many on the anti-treaties I talked about, the soul of Ireland, the honour of Ireland. Someone's supposed to say, it would be a sin to agree to this treaty. Right? It was the language of Catholicism, which was the lingua franca that bound nearly all of these people together. Right? We ended up under de Valera, but also under Commonwealth and later Fine Gael, in a theocracy. This state was ruled inside the framework of Catholic thought, narrow Catholic thought. Some would say Jansenist heretical Catholicism for, you know, right up into the set. That only began to crack in the 70s and in the 80s with increasing speed. As we are moving more and more towards a de facto republicanism, if not a nationalist definition of a republic, we are slowly becoming a modern secular republic. I would hope we would become a modern secular republic which respected people's religious beliefs, incidentally. I have no patience for people who think we can solve everything by breaking the power of the churches. I think that's nonsense. You cannot have freedom unless people are free to believe what they want to believe, as long as it's not harmful. But we ended up with a theocracy. And underneath this, almost all of these TDs were Catholics, and almost all of those TDs would kneel and kiss a bishop's ring. Almost all of these TDs were conservative Catholic doctrinaires. And that's what we ended up with, the state butchers, because the most organised cadre in the new state was the Catholic Church. The deal that was done in the 19th century, we will give you Maynooth if you break Fenianism. That essentially was the deal the British offered. And the church took it. Yeah, and the other thing that strikes me about that is, you know, some people describe what emerged as a result of the Civil War and, and the, the coming the Gale was very conservative. Again, as we found out, de Valera was just as conservative in his own way. But people use this phrase, the counter-revolution, suggesting that out of all this came this, what it developed into a theocracy. I find it hard to believe on the basis of, as you point out, and as I absolutely subscribe to the power of the church at the time, that irrespective of what would have happened, we were most likely to advance into a theocracy one way or the other. We were- hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Because the republic that both sides argued for was a republic, was a term without content. The, four, the People say the three pillars of the French state are liberté, égalité, fraternité. I would say sororité these days, sisterhood as well as brotherhood. There's a fourth pillar in the French Republic, which nobody refers to, laïcité. Laïcité, the removal of all forms of organised religion from the management and structures and laws of the state. That's the fourth unspoken pillar of republicanism. And we did not embrace that. We didn't even refer to it. Nobody referred to it. 
And yet that is at the heart of the French Republic. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Back again to the debates themselves. I think I'm correct. Seven votes separated the, the pro-treaty from the anti-treaty when the, the vote was taken on the 7th of January. Um, and yet, uh, I was it six months later, I think it was the 16th of June, 1922, with a general election that was, and I think it's fair to say, a de facto plebiscite on the treaty. It was argued and as was, such, and 78% of the people voted to ratify it. 78%. Yeah. So from that point of view, was this impassioned debate, and as you said, it was really impassioned and genuine on both sides, but was that a true reflection of the feeling outside the doors of, of, um, of the, the, the chamber there? It wasn't, in one sense, if you look at it ex post facto six months later, but it could very well have been a reflection of the uncertainty in the country about which way to go. You see, the opponents of the treaty put about one great lie, and it was countered very effectively in the debates, but maybe not necessarily in the public mind, that they were sent, the delegates, the plenipotentiaries, were sent to London to come back with a republic. Now, de Valera and Lloyd George, in correspondence going back to the previous July, both understood each other that there would not be a republic. Lloyd George said, there will be nothing to discuss if you insist on this. And de Valera said, well, let us see what we can do. Right? I think a lot of people at the time of the debate were confused about whether or not the Republic was being given up. The pro-treaty side said, this is how we advance the Republic. We take our freedom, we take our own courts, our own judiciary, we take our own army, we take our own Department of Finance, we take our own Parliament, and we move towards this as yet to be defined republic. But the other side, the anti-treaty side, it seems to me, took the view that, no, if we take this now, this is where it will stop. And we will never have the republic. Again, that side also did not define what a republic would be. What they meant by a republic was simply an island, an island-wide Ireland under a single government. But no talk about would it be conservative, would it be reactionary, would it be progressive, would it be revolutionary? No talk about that on either side, right? So yeah. he, there was a misleading idea put about that to ab- accept the free state was to abandon the republic. But time and time again, pro-treaty TDs asked, and the most moderate of them asked, what is your plan? If we defeat this treaty, what is your plan? Now, de Valera's answer was, my document, document number two. Now, the difference between document number two and the treaty was simply de Valera wanted external association with the British Commonwealth, right? And they would recognise the King of England as the head of the Commonwealth. And sorry, would that still be on a 26-county basis? Yes. Yes, because there was no, absolutely no prospect whatsoever following the Government of Ireland Act 1920, which established Northern Ireland as 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 an independent political entity. There was no way short of either the Stormont Parliament agreeing to join with the 26 counties of the South and form an All-Ireland administration, in other words, secede what had been granted to them as their sovereignty by the British government, or to oppose them in arms. And to oppose them in arms was literally, physically impossible. We did not have the resources. You have to remember 
that after the treaty, do you ever notice suddenly, if you look back at the old Pathé newsreels, out of nowhere you have a free state army fully equipped and uniformed. Where did the guns and uniforms come from? They came out of a warehouse in Sheffield where they had been sent following the discussions in London, ready to be sent to the new Irish government as soon as it was established. Right? Do you think for a moment that if that army had attempted to coerce the six counties, that the British army wouldn't have stepped in, even though I believe they were militarily well capable of standing for themselves, and there would have been mass slaughter of Catholics because the Northern State was deeply sectarian and quite vicious deeply sectarian, even more so than in your lifetime and mine. There would have been mass slaughter of Catholics and military defeat. So you'd have had a new state which had been militarily defeated with the reimposition of British rule across the island, with tens, possibly tens of thousands of people dead. For what? The realists said, this is not a prospect we can face. Mm. Uh, but those who would not be realists had no plan. They could not say. De Valera had actually written to Lloyd George saying, we will not coerce the North. So if they're not going to coerce them, what is the difference between the treaty and anti-treaty sides? A shadow, as Arthur Griffith put it. Now, I say all this, Mick, and just, you know, just to be very clear and absolutely open, I consider myself a Republican. I would love to. I haven't long left in this world, but um, maybe a little longer than some people might wish. But... <laughs> But I would love to live in a freely chosen All-Ireland Republic where every citizen of it felt happy to be in and proud to be in that republic. But I've, I've said this in essays, which have been also, of course, comprehensively ignored, that, you know, the best thing we could do if we want to see a united Ireland is build a real republic in our republic, a republic in fact and constitution as substance and not just in name, and make it attractive. Make it a, an attractive and sane choice for the people of the six counties. So, yeah, we would rather be in this state than in that other. Now, that will take time, but we could have started doing that 30 years ago. We could have started doing that 100 years ago. It's still not too late to do it. But build a republic and they will come. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more to you, that whole analysis. Um, the other thing that strikes me is, and, you know, my family would have been on the anti-treaty side. My granduncle was summarily executed effectively after an engagement in, in South Kerry and my, my family down through the generations would have been of dev, they would have been to that standard. And if you look at kind of popular culture as well, um, the, 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 the romantic view, to put it that way, is often gifted to the anti-treaty side. And a certain amount of that, I would suggest, is down to the fact of issues like the executions, which were extrajudicial killings, which were, effect as Cleo Varadkar admitted himself, were murders, and the conduct of the free state in the civil war, which is easy to say no, because we weren't the ones having to, uh, to establish a new state. And as well, it has to be said that in terms of the free state, their attitude was, if we don't stop this thing and have what we have negotiated, the British will move back in here. So they, they had their own thing. They but won't even have left, was yeah, the point. And, and, I mean, and, a number of looking, TDs say in the debates, you were effectively voting to keep the British Army and the Black and Tans in Ireland. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. That, and that Taking the long view, I, I, I would suggest that it's difficult, notwithstanding everyone's very good faith in how they were negotiating and debating, it's difficult to say anything but Collins and Griffith and those around them were correct. 
Well, I, there was 440,000 words in that debate. And I, cut, I had to cut it down to 100,000 to make it feasible to put it on. And by God, I sweated blood to make sure both sides got their fair dues in this. And, you know, the Decade of Centenaries Committee has a panel of historians drawn from all spect- all across the spectrum of historians. And they were satisfied that it's fair and accurate. Now, as I read through that, I was swinging this way and that way. I mean, I come out of a, a Republican tradition, I suppose, Republican Labour tradition, uh, in, in a very light sense, not in the sense of actively participating on uh, either my father's and my mother's side. But I ended up saying, look, you know, now that we know what happened, then they were correct to take the treaty. They were correct to take it and not taking it. And so many people refusing made it impossible to advance from the treaty by constitutional and other means. It made it impossible. It solidified. The ironic thing is the Civil War solidified partition. Yeah. Whatever hope there was of achieving unity of, of, of political identity on the island vanished with the Civil War because it consolidated the northern state in its hatred, its institutional hatred, whatever about individuals, its institutional hatred for the South. And it also condemned the Catholic population of Northern Ireland, and I use that term rather than nationalist, the Catholic population, to servitude as second-class citizens right up to the beginning of the civil rights movement. You know, Seamus Mallon famously described the Belfast Agreement as Sunningdale for slow learners, (laughs) you know, this is um, at the moment we're in, you know, we're still slowly learning the implications of the lessons of what the issues were in the treaty debates, which are still, as I said earlier, the live issues we have to deal with now. And one other final thing about that, Theo, and it takes it a small bit away, but and I saw you contributed as well to an excellent documentary there made by uh, former RT reporter Jerry O'Callaghan about the murders of a number of Protestants in West Cork in the kind of lacuna between the the, the debates, actually, and, and the outbreak of civil war. And a theme that was brought up there was that the, the, the provisional IRAs, they see themselves, they see themselves as continuing on the fight of the anti-treatyites from the Civil War. I'd have to say I've difficulty about any legitimacy in relation to that. Yeah, and, and in, in, in a strange sense, in a strange sense, so has contemporary Sinn Féin. Because contemporary Sinn Féin has dealt with what the pro-treaty side had to deal with in the treaty debates. They have to, they have, Sinn Féin has, I believe, genuinely committed themselves to the democratic process. Now, by doing that, they're saying, we must be bound by the will of the Irish people. That means they're breaking with the tradition of saying, the Irish people have no right to be wrong. Now, I have no doubt that there are cadres inside Sinn Féin who believe that the legitimacy of achieving a republic through armed struggle as granted, as birthed in Easter week is still valid. But they're a diminishing number, I think. And I think that Sinn Féin has actually, the contemporary Sinn Féin has switched over to the idea that the only hope they have for long-term legitimacy, and they're entitled to have it, and I hope they get it, is by commitment to the democratic process, to the will of the people. The physical force tradition took the view always that the people had no right to be wrong. Call it what it is, vanguardism. Now, the problem with 
being a vanguard. Mary McSweeney, I'll digress a moment. Mary McSweeney mm. says, the Irish people have been slaves for so long. They still have a slave mind. They will vote for your treaty because they do not understand what is at stake. But they must be brought to understand. And it may take 10 years or it may take 12 years. Now, that attitude, you know, here I am with a gun in my hand and I know better than you what's good for you is one of the most pernicious aspects of the 20th century. It's what gave us the Bolshevik liquidation of their own revolution. It's what gave us Nazism. It's what gave us Pinochet in Chile. It gave us, in a less armed fashion, Margaret Thatcher sending mounted police in against strikers. Right? That attitude of, we know better than you because you're too thick to understand what's at issue. I find that quite disgusting, actually. And I think it's a sign of political maturity in Sinn Féin that they have abandoned what was historically a thread running through their politics. And they've come to understand that you must argue for and gain the democratic assent of the people. So that I see some hope in that, contrary to what a lot of people think. Now, I say this as someone who's argued to their faces, to the majority of the republic that they're not Republicans, they're nationalists, not Republicans. And I mean, I've taken a few lumps for saying that. Peter, and I have been extraordinarily misrepresented by a, a, a journalist from Cork. Well, from Prez. We'll talk about that after. <laughs> In my own little bit of sectarianism. Um, and, you know, I do not believe for a moment that the provisional IRA's arm campaign had any legitimacy. I do not believe that. I do not believe that no warning car bombs that immolating young women in pubs for the crime of dancing with a British soldier is a legitimate way of achieving the republic I want to live in. But I do believe in those who courageously fought from inside that movement to bring about the Belfast Agreement and to bring those who would like to see United Ireland onto the path of democracy. I believe in their bona fides until they prove otherwise. And I think it's an important act of faith that we have to make. We have to believe in the bona fides of people. No matter what we associate with their past, we have to remember the first Fianna Fáil TDs to walk into the aisle carried guns in their pockets. Right. From fear as much as anything else, by the way. Fear of Bri Harriers and the special branch of the new free state government. But, you know, I don't think we ever had a revolution in this country. And one of the reasons we didn't have a revolution was the civil war made it so urgent to establish the machinery of state that, having no other option, the new free state government took on the corpus of criminal law, the corpus of civil law, the means of running the courts, the means of running government departments that had already existed. All the servants of the old state stepped to one side, waited till the dust settled down and then moved back into their positions again. So we ended up never having had the time because of the crisis of civil war to think, well, what kind of court system would we like? What kind of financial system should we like? Where should we put our financial priorities in state expenditure? How should we develop an education system? We just rolled on. And, you know, they had to do it at the point of a gun. You can understand that. But never since then have we stepped back and said, OK, we have achieved a relatively stable state. Let us now have a revolutionary rethink of what do we want? Who do we want to be? Very true. And and, and the, the tragedy of, of the Civil War, as you say, and, and the tragedy of politics thereafter that um, that time wasn't taken to, to look at that. Theo, the, as I say, I think it's a fantastic piece of work. I, I, it's enthralling and it's highly educational. Uh, will it be available anywhere from no, here on? Or? There's a difficult question there and it's this. Um, when we 
you know, I have to say this to the actors, they came back in after four extraordinary nights of performance. Remember, ten and a half hours, Mick, of, of, of performance. So that's four plays. That's four full yeah. plays. Right? And they're doing the same rehearsal time that they've had for one. The production team, and especially the director, Louise Lowe, Lynette Moran and Matt Smith, the producers, they did heroic work, as did, crucially, Owen Boss, the production designer, who brought us back in time. The most extraordinary feat. They did that on the budget and the actors came back in and the team came back in to film it. And that's what went up on the live stream. But artists have to be paid. Oh, We're yeah. not an unpaid public service. So the actors have to be paid and their agents said, look, you can run it, but you have to pay them, which is standard in the film industry. If you have a repeat, you get paid repeat fees. But if you only looked at the actors, that's four and a half thousand a day. Minimum. Yeah. Right. So we can't yeah. repeat it. No, we have to find some way of doing this. My own feeling is what I would like the state to do is to rise to the occasion, pay a buyout fee to all of those involved, in the, all the actors involved in the production so that we own it and then make this, this film available to every school in the country, to every public organisation in the country. Put it up for the world to see. But, Absolutely. you know, that has to be done. At the moment, it can't be done, unfortunately, because nobody has the money to pay the actors what they are legitimately entitled to for their work. So it's a well, difficult situation. Of course, situation. Yeah, and underpaid as it is, uh, yeah. the nature of it, yeah, absolutely. And, and that is something, But maybe something can be found. But can I say one thing, Mick, which yeah. I, I want to go back, and I did touch on this. I thought it was extraordinarily illuminating and equally disappointing that we did not have a TDs and senators in the audience for this production. It's possible that some of them may have watched some or even all of the um, the live stream production, but, you know, ten and a half hours is a lot. I would like to see them reflect on how these artists, these actors, this production company, my own modest way myself, how we put ourselves on the line to try to recover a lost moment, the moment where we went wrong, and give us the opportunity to rethink it, to think again about who we want to be. I would like to see the state step up and acquire this and make it available to every school child in the country so that we do not repeat the same mistakes again and again and again. Absolutely, Theo, and it just occurs to me, um, and I, I look, I'd be straight up, I have great time for Bono, I think he's a great artist and all, but when he had his show publicising his autobiography, which is supposed to be fine read, all of the top politicians in the country attended at the Olympia. This is a big occasion. And good luck and fair play to them. By all accounts, it was a great show. But the only point being, I think it goes to what you're saying, if they've time enough and interest enough to go along to that, how in the name of God, considering their jobs, their public service to democracy, can they not at least show some time or effort in relation to what is something as crucial as this? Well, you know, it's interesting, you know, when you use the term jobs and public service, you know, there's a disjunction between the two, isn't there, Mick? Well, there is, I suppose, yeah. It's always fascinating to me to see, especially ministers, you know, who leave the Doyle with very considerable pensions and you never hear of them doing a day's public service again ever after. You don't see them joining the boards of charities. There are, of course, exceptions. I know this. I know this. But by and large, you wonder what their idea of public service is, some of them. There are many genuine 
people, and I mean this now, they're a genuine people whose politics I vehemently disagree with, but I believe they are genuine in their beliefs, in the Doyle and in the Shannon, and across the public service as a whole. But how many of them are actuated as these deputies at the time of the treaty were by a genuine love of Ireland, by a wish to give service? I'd take some convincing. Very, very true. And of itself, another conversation, Theo, that hopefully one day, not too far away, we will have, because it's always great to have you on the podcast. I have no idea why my, my beloved wife always says, whenever I step over a line politically, she always looks at me and says, hot number one, bed number one, the Roscommon Gulag. <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't discovered why this imagined gulag of hers would be in Roscommon. She can't explain that one to me. <laughs> no offence to the people of Roscommon, who incidentally, who incidentally hosted the Douglas Hyde annual yeah. gathering out of which that book of essays on the Constitution came. Fair play. Yes. Theo Dorgan, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for that, Theo. Mick, you're very welcome. It's always a pleasure. And, and a perfect example of ecumenism, Cork and Kerry. <laughs> okay. Good luck to you. Yeah, thanks. All of us. Good luck to you. Thanks care. for that. Bye. Uh, I'd also like to thank, as always, our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you, folks, for listening. And hopefully, we're going to, in some capacity, have that production available to us in some form sometime in the near future. Talk to you again soon. <laughs>